Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers and men here. So glad to see you here. Um, man, that was reminded me of a conversation that Melissa had with one of our little girls a while back. They were talking to one of, she was talking to one of our daughters, and, and apparently there's two boys in the church that are t- already talking about marrying her, and uh, she's having to choose. And so I'm sitting there watching that thinking, oh, dear Lord, this is, there are some parts of fatherhood that are, are really good, and there are other parts, you know, the parts where we have to murder little boys that are going to be difficult, but we'll get through it. We'll get through it. But uh, happy Father's Day. Um, it's so good to see you. Um, I'm so glad that you're here with us and you're choosing to honor God on a day that's set aside to honor you. And so thank you, thank you, thank you for being here today. If you have your Bible, open it up to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. Today we are finishing our series that we're calling Redeemed. And what we've been doing over the past several weeks is studying the book of Ruth, going verse by verse through this story. And today we're going to see how it ends. If you're a father here today, I I want you to uh, pay really close attention to Boaz. Boaz has really elevated himself as the hero of our story. And almost everything that Boaz says and does, he looks a lot like Jesus. And so if you've ever been in a point in your life where you're like, man, I, I'm not Jesus, I can't be Jesus, I'm, I'm just sinful, but, but I'm a human. And, and, um, and so you need to like find somebody to, to look like because you don't feel like you can measure up to Jesus. Well, study Boaz. Look at Boaz because uh, Boaz is a, is a sinful man just like you and I. But in every decision and everything he makes, he looks a lot like Jesus. And, and he really becomes this ideal picture of a godly man. And so let me back up and catch you up where, where we are in the story just real quick. So the story starts out with a famine in Bethlehem. And there's a man named Elimelech who moves his family away from God's people to the pagan nation of Moab. While he's there, Elimelech dies along with his two sons, and his wife, Naomi, is left there in a pagan land with two pagan daughters-in-law. Well, Naomi hears that there's bread in the house of Bethlehem again, that uh, God has restored his blessings, and so she comes back to Bethlehem, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, in her conversion to worship and serve Almighty God, decides to come with her. When they come back to Bethlehem, it just so happens that it's at the beginning of the barley harvest, and so Ruth decides to go out and glean. Basically, she's going to go and take advantage of the Israelite welfare system to find enough food for that day in order to feed her and um, her mother-in-law, Naomi. Um, She just so happens to find herself in the field of Boaz, and Boaz just so happens to be kind, generous, he just so happens to be wealthy, and he just so happens to be single, which is very, very important for the rest of our story. And um, Boaz is kind, he takes care of her, he says, you stay in this field because you're going to be treated like family and not a foreigner in here, and um, things sort of look like they're going to present progress in the relationship, but they kind of stall. Boaz doesn't seem to have a whole lot of like romance game. Um, He just kind of stalls out on it. And so one night, Ruth approaches Boaz and um, tells Boaz, like, look, I want to marry you. I want you to marry me. So she's kind of proposing that he proposed. And he's like, yes, I want to marry you too, but we're going to do this thing right. Um, When Boaz sees Ruth, he sees in her character, integrity, virtue. He sees the potential for a godly legacy. But there is one problem. Because in this culture, there was a closer redeemer. We talked about this last week, about this issue of the redeemer. That if... um, 
When God gave the land of Canaan, the promised land, to his people, he gave it to them as an inheritance. And so they they divided the land tribe by tribe, family by family. And so every family line had access to a certain portion of land. And if uh, somebody made a bad decision or they fell on hard times, they had lost access to that land that was still their inheritance. And um, a redeemer could come along and buy back that land and restore the land and restore the family to that position of prominence. And so... um, Really, Naomi and Ruth needed a redeemer to come in and restore the land and restore the family legacy. And Ruth was saying, Boaz, I want you to be that redeemer. Redeem our land and marry me. There was one problem with that. We're reminded of this in chapter 3, verse 12. I'll read it here. Boaz says this, but while it's true, I am one of your family redeemers. There's another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Boaz essentially says, look, I want to marry you, but I want what God wants more than what I want. If God's not willing to allow me to marry you, then I'm okay with that. We're not going to circumvent God's laws and God's will. Boaz is a man. He says, I have preferences. I have desires, but I only want what God wants for me. In essence, Boaz is saying, not my will, but thy will. Again, he's looking a lot like Jesus. In everything he says or or does, he sort of pre-Jesus reflects the character of Jesus, and, and he's saying we have to submit our will to God, and, and when we submit our will to God, that is a mark of a righteous man. Dads, listen, if you want to live righteous and you want to lead well in your family, you want to lead your kids well, you have to learn to submit your will to the will of God. And so what we're going to see through the end of this story that Boaz really sets right and fixes every single mess that Elimelech has created. And so Boaz is going to be the kind of guy that's going to come in and he's going to set right messes that other men have created. And as believers, as Christians, uh, God will sometimes put us in a position to where we have to pay for, we have to clean up, and we have to fix the mess that other people have created. And sometimes that can be frustrating, sometimes that can be very discouraging, but God often raises up Christian men as redeemers to do this very thing, because it's the heart of God to redeem, it's the heart of God to restore, it's the heart of God to set right, and sometimes He uses godly men and women to do that very thing. And so when God calls you to fix the mess that somebody else created, don't look at that as a punishment. Look at that as God sees character inside of you. God sees the type of person inside of you that he can use to set somebody else's mess right and be honored that God has called you to that. Just be honored that God has called you to that. And that's what we see is going on in Boaz's life right now. So Boaz sets out to to resolve this issue primarily right now to resolve the issue of a closer redeemer. So there's somebody in line to redeem the land and marry Ruth that is ahead of him. And so scripture says he sets out early in the morning. Like he wants to marry this girl. He doesn't believe in long engagements. Um, He wants to get after this thing. Like if he wants to marry her, let's go ahead and marry her. Again, we talked about this a while back. Boaz isn't just looking for a good time. He's looking for a good legacy. He wants to marry this girl. And so chapter four, verse one says this. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. 
The town gate was like the, um, like the city square. It was like the courthouse where business is conducted. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. And so again, notice what Boaz does. He leaves everything behind. It's in the middle of harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest, the, the, the overseer, the CEO of his field. And so it's very important for him to stay there and, and protect his investment. But in Boaz's life, something more important came up because Boaz believes that his legacy is more important than, than what happens on his land at this moment. Boaz loves Ruth, and so he goes to, to basically make sure that he can marry Ruth and, and leaves the land, leaves the harvest in the hands of his foreman. Boaz knows that, that you, can't, you can't let a good job rob you from a good legacy. Man, listen to this. Write this down on the pages of your heart. Don't you dare let a good job rob you of a good legacy. Okay? Don't let a good job rob you of a good legacy. So many times we're sacrificing a good legacy for a good job, right? So many times we're sacrificing a good marriage for a good job. Don't ever let a good job rob you from a good legacy. And so what he does, he goes down to the town gate where the business matters take place. Boaz is going to make sure this is done right. He's going to sign all the legal documents. He's going to have the witnesses and the notaries there to make sure that this transaction happens the way it's supposed to. Scripture tells us that when he goes to the gate, it just so happens that the closer redeemer walks by. Scripture says this in a way that would cause us to believe that this would have been sort of an uncommon experience, that this man walks by. Again, it's God's invisible hand of providence making itself very visible throughout this entire story. And so Boaz sees the man walking by. He's got the elders of the town there, the, the, the business leaders there. And um, he says, hey, friend, come on over here and have a seat. We're going to talk. And when he's calling him friend, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a relationship. It's just the, like the greeting of the day. It's kind of a casual, hey, buddy, hey, pal, hey, hey, guy, come over here and, and have a seat. You and I are going to talk. He's not being overly cordial in this moment. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have a relationship. He's just like, hey, you, I need to talk to you. Come over here, sit down, let's do this thing. Now, this man that he's talking to, the closer redeemer, the one that has the right of redemption for the land, and to Mary Ruth, Scripture doesn't give us this man's name at all. We have to pay really close attention when Scripture doesn't give us a name because it's usually intentional. I believe that Scripture doesn't give us this man's name because he doesn't do anything noteworthy. Everything that Boaz is, this man is the opposite. This man, that we don't know his name, he was legally, morally, and spiritually obligated to take care of Naomi and Ruth. Okay, he had the means to take care of Naomi and Ruth. He was legally, morally, and spiritually obligated to check on them, to take care of them. Um, when he heard they were back in town, it was his responsibility to go make sure they were okay, that they were eating, that they had a place to stay, that they were provided for, and he did absolutely nothing. He didn't help them. He didn't check on them. He didn't check to see what the status of their land and their inheritance and their legacy was. He doesn't go offer to pray for them. He does absolutely nothing. And so scripture leaves him absolutely nameless because he does absolutely nothing. And we see in this and throughout scripture, and we know this in our own lives, that the sins of omission, those things that we're supposed to do that we don't, those sins of omission are just as spiritually damaging as the sins of commission. 
We oftentimes look at those things that we're not supposed to do that we do as sin, but we just don't ever really see those things that we are supposed to do but don't as sin. When James chapter 4 verse 17 says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. It is sin. Scripture says it's sin when there's something that you know that you're supposed to do and you refuse to do it, just like it's sin when you know there's, not, there's something that you're not supposed to do and you do it. I think it's important for us as believers and dads and moms to, to take stock from time to time, to, to look at our life and seriously consider what are the things that we are supposed to do but we're not doing? What are some of those things that Scripture compels us to do that we aren't doing? Because James tells us that it is sin if there's something we know we ought to do, but we don't do it. Verse 2, then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And so Boaz, he kind of, he, he kind of springs this on this guy. He says, hey, buddy, come here, sit down. And then after he comes and sits down, he, he, he invites 10 of the leaders, 10 of the elders of the community to come so that they can, tran they can do this business transaction. He's making sure this, this, uh, this legal trans transaction is, is binding and it's official. So he's doing all of this stuff, making sure it's done absolutely right. Like a lawyer making sure all the, everything is perfect and all the language is perfect. This is going to be a legal transaction here that he's looking for. Verse 3. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi. Now, I think this is important for us to consider. He says, you know Naomi. Think back to what James chapter 4, verse 17 says. It is sin when you know what you ought to do and don't do it. And so, and so Boaz is really exposing this man's sin. He says, you know, Naomi, you know your obligation. You know your spiritual and legal and moral obligation to Naomi. So don't come in here and try to use that, well, I didn't know as an excuse, or I never heard that they were back in town, or I didn't realize. That is not an excuse. You know, just so that everybody knows, you know that you know, I know that you know, they know that you know, we all know that you know Naomi. He says, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. So Boaz is like, this land, it needs to be redeemed. Um, this land, Naomi's not actually selling the land because she wouldn't need a redeemer if she had possession of the land. Um, but what he's saying is uh, this land needs to be redeemed. Like Naomi is back. She needs uh, an income. She needs a, a, a place, uh, a source to trust in. And so we need to redeem this land. We need to exercise the right of redemption, which we talked about last week, that says if a redeemer came in to restore the inheritance of the land, then whoever had possession of it had to sell. It was the right of redemption. We talked about that last week. We talked about the fact that God is so good that he never wants people to feel hopeless. He always wants to create a system, and God is constantly creating systems to where people have an opportunity at re restoration and redemption. And so what Boaz is saying is if you want the land... Um, buy it back, redeem the land, set things right. You have that right, and so I'm telling you to exercise this right. You need to bankroll um, uh, the, the, the restored inheritance for these women and bring it back into the family line. Right here, right now, if you want the land, 
by the land. So we see character in Boaz because though Boaz wants to marry the girl, um, he's going to first and foremost make sure that the girl is taken care of. And so even if he doesn't get to marry her, he's going to make sure that she is going to be married, that Ruth is going to be married, and that they're going to have a future. Then this redeemer, this um, jerk, who we don't know, we're just going to call him a jerk because that's kind of what the scripture indicates. So this jerk that we don't know, he says this, okay, I'll redeem it. In essence, he was offered this, this wonderful piece of real estate for, for dirt cheap. And he's like, yeah, I'll take it. This sounds really, really good. And as we read this story, we, we kind of get this indication like, uh-oh, like, man, that kind of just fizzled, you know? Our, our hero doesn't get the girl. Um, that's, that's kind of a bummer. We thought this was going to be great. Now we don't have any weddings, no babies, nothing like that. Um, and we don't really know what Boaz is thinking when this man says, all right, I'll redeem it. But if we could hear his inner monologue, I bet he would sound something like, eh, not happening, right? <laughs> says, I'll redeem it. Like, he's like, yeah, you will. Let's, let's talk a little bit more. Um, because, listen, because Boaz, though, though he was a godly man, and, and guys, I want you to listen to me. And, and wives, I, 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 I want you to back me up on this. And so if you believe this, I want a hearty amen so that your husband knows that, that you feel this way. As, as guys, don't ever think that just because you are a man who loves the Lord means you can automatically be a pushover. Listen, we need our men to act like men. We need our godly men to act like men. We need our godly men to lead well, to be strong, to fight for what you believe in. We have to press against this cultural narrative that says all Christian men are these like Ned Flanders, nerdy sort of like feminine weirdos. Like, listen, we need our godly men to be strong. Yes, amen? We need our godly men to be masculine. We need our godly men to be aggressive. We need our godly men to be willing to fight for their family. We need our godly men to be willing to fight for their faith. We need our godly men to be willing to fight for their church. We need our godly men to be willing to say, I will follow Jesus no matter what it costs me, no matter what I have to do, I am all in. We need our godly men to pursue the will of God at all costs, amen? We need our godly men to act like men. Don't ever back down. Don't ever back down. So Boaz, just because he's a godly man, doesn't mean he's a pushover, doesn't mean he's a sissy in business. He's going to make sure that this is done right. Boaz wants God's will, but he also believes that Ruth is God's will. He loves Ruth, and he doesn't believe that this jerk is God's will for her life, even though he has the rights of redemption. And so this is what he does. He's not going to back down without a fight. He's not going to let her go just because there's a little opposition. And so this is what Boaz does in verse 5, in the middle of this business transaction. Then Boaz told him, the, the, the jerk, right? This is what he says to him. Because basically he has to get this guy out of the way so he can marry Ruth. He says, of course, listen, of course, when you buy the land, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. I want you to see something that's very interesting here because at no point in this story has Boaz ever called Ruth a Moabite at no point he's always called her my daughter and in essence he's always called her sweetheart honey darling precious 
princess, my daughter. He, he's, never, he's never once painted her in a picture of a foreigner, a pagan, or an outsider. But now when he's telling this, this jerk that you have to marry the Moabite, he changes the narrative a little bit. And, and, and maybe they're going to fight about this later. Maybe Ruth goes up to, why did you call me a Moabite? How come, you know, I don't know, maybe. But, but what he's doing is he's saying, like, he doesn't talk about her character, her virtue, or any of that stuff. He just says, hey, remember the pagan who's not a virgin? You have to marry her. And, oh, by the way, like, her husband died. I don't know why he died. Maybe God was angry with him for marrying a pagan. I don't know why he died. But he's dead, and you have to marry her. Was God angry with him? Maybe. Oh, but, but that's who you have to marry. And then he says, that way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. So he says, you got to marry the pagan. Oh, and one last thing, you um, have to have a child together so that Elimelech's family line can continue. It was, it was live right marriage. It's Old Testament law. Um, so he says, you got to, you got to marry the girl. You got to uh, give her a baby so that the family line will continue. So um, are you ready for 3 a.m. feedings? Are you ready for dirty diapers and, and being pottied on all the time? Are you ready for ear infections? Are you ready for runny noses? Are you ready for trips to the ER and, and, and the wellness unit? Are you ready for the teething and the potty training? Are you ready for a meddling mother-in-law? Because, oh, if you didn't know, like Ruth and Naomi are connected, and so wherever Ruth goes, the meddling mother-in-law goes too. Like, are you ready for all of this stuff, right? Because if you are, then by all means, redeem the land, and all of this comes with it. Suddenly, this great deal doesn't sound so good. But, but you know what? As, as fathers and mothers, and, and we know this, oftentimes those things that, that um, can be painted as sort of the most difficult parts of parenting have the potential to become the most precious, don't they? Because when, when you have the obligation to wake up in the middle of the night and rock your one-year-old back to sleep with an ear infection. That puts you out a little bit, but there's nothing more precious in those moments. When, when there's nobody else around and, and you are there to comfort, man, God is so good that he gives us this gift of parenting. He is so good that he allows us to walk with these children in their trying, difficult, hard times and be there for them. And th those are just moments. So, so, so let's keep going, verse six. Then this guy says, I can't redeem it because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. So we have to look at the reasoning. Why did he say he couldn't redeem? Because this might endanger my own estate. This man doesn't get identified in scripture because he only cares about himself. He's only interested in himself. He will only do this if it benefits him. This is why he never checked on Ruth and Naomi, because there would be no benefit for him if he had to check on them and he had to provide for them. He had to put out for them. And the fact that he wouldn't redeem them for this reason is absolutely despicable and shameful. He thought that if he married Ruth and Ruth had a child, then the child would get the land and he wouldn't even get the land. And so what would it benefit him? He knew the good he was supposed to do and he didn't do it because it wouldn't personally benefit him. He was consumed only with himself, his, his own legacy, his own estate, his own bottom line, his own portfolio. 
He was fine with God's ways as long as it personally benefited him and didn't cost him anything. But the second it was going to put him out a little bit, the second it had the potential to cost him anything, he was done following God's will or God's ways. Selfish people don't leave a good legacy. Think about this from a father's perspective. Dads, you get home, it's been a long day at work, you want to sit down for a bit, but your son wants to throw the ball. You have to, you have to fight the selfishness. Maybe you have a day off, Friday, Saturday, you want to spend time with the guys, but your daughter wants to spend time with you. What are you gonna do? You have to fight that selfishness. Dads, it is impossible to leave a good legacy if you're selfish with your time, your hobbies, your attention, your affections. The close redeemer doesn't realize that what he's doing is he's missing out on one of the greatest opportunities to be a part of something spiritually unbelievable that God is going to do in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. And because of his selfishness, God leaps frog or leapfrogs this, this jerk and, and he pours the blessings out on Boaz. It's impossible for God to bless the life of a stingy and selfish person. Some of you are here today and you have a problem with this. You think of only yourself. How is this going to benefit me? I'll follow God as long as it works out well for me. But the second it costs me anything, I'm done with it. The second it puts me out, I'm done with it. The second I have to give anything, I'm done with it. And look, that is a dead-end street. And that leads to nowhere because God is looking for generous people that he can pour out on with a divine with the divine like, like blessing of generosity of his own. When you operate in generosity, God is free to bless. When you operate in generosity, God is free to bless. He just is. Let me tell you a quick story about how I seen this play out in my life just, just uh, about a month or so ago. Um, in February, we were doing our Kingdom Builders initiative. We were asking people to take one step in, in their, their financial giving and generosity from uh, um, uh, contributing to tithing, from tithing to kingdom building. And um, as that, that first offering day was coming up, um, I really felt like God was telling me what to give in that first offering. I really felt like God was saying, hey, in this first initial offering, I want you to give $3,000. And then, you know, give, you know, throughout the rest of the year. But, but in this first one, I want you to give $3,000. And God has asked us to give you know, some significant portions before. So this wasn't fully out of the ordinary, but, but I... I reminded God of our situation, and, and I, you know, I, I didn't know if God didn't take in, it, into consideration everything that was going on in our lives, but, but I had to remind him, like, God, you know, we're, we're making an offer on a house. We're, we're getting ready to move here. Um, I, I, I don't know if you realize that when you buy a house, like, there's a lot of out-of-pocket expenses and closing costs and, and all these other things. Like, I'm, I'm informing God here because he obviously doesn't know those things, and so I'm letting him know. Um, you know, why he's wrong and asking us to give $3,000. And so, you know, I argued with God and I was obviously right and God was wrong. And so that, um, that Sunday came up and, you know, I was like, what am I going to do, the $3,000? And, you know, I thought, well, you know, because God obviously doesn't get it, um, I'm just going to give $1,000. And, and I, I'm not saying this to like pick myself up or put myself down. I know that that's all relative. Like to some, like $1,000 is like, oh my goodness, that's so much. Others are like, you know, whatever. Um, but, but this is just kind of where it was for us. And, and because there was some fear of, of some of the expenses that were coming. You know, I, I, I wrote a thousand and I said, hey God, you know, look at us still. You know, I, I still bet that's more than most people give. So, you know, you know like if nobody else is gonna pat me on the back, I'll pat myself on the back and all that stuff. So I was still pretty impressed with myself that I gave a thousand dollars. And that week, you know, we had already made an offer on the house and, 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 you know, in the negotiations, we were just at a dead end. We weren't going up any further. They weren't coming down any further. It was just over. 
And so it was time for us to, to start looking elsewhere. And, uh, you know, let's go back to looking and well, let's, you know, just, you know, back to square one sort of thing. And throughout that week, the Holy Spirit was being really annoying to me because um, he was like, how much did you give? A thousand. How much did I ask you to give? Oh, what do you mean? You know, and it's like, I, I thought I said 3,000 and 1,000. I thought I said 3,000. And, and it's back and forth. And so then I talked to Melissa about it, who was kind of like the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life too. And I said, man, I, I felt like God told me 3,000. She said, why didn't you give 3,000? And oh, I don't know, because we got all these expenses. And, and she's like, well, that's kind of stupid if God told you to do this and you only did this, right? Oh, like, yeah, I guess you're right. That is kind of stupid. And so came back to the next week, that next Sunday, we wrote the check, and I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated because I feel like we're still going to move, and like this is, you know, moving expenses and closing costs and stuff like this. I'm like, eh. and um, and uh, and I'm not making anything up for the sake of the story, but we gave. You know, I finally operated in obedience in that Sunday, and then two and a half hours later, at two thirty on Sunday afternoon, we get a call, and said, "Okay, they're going to accept your offer." And so, what what I was holding on to because I felt like we needed this extra money so that we could do this. God was testing me and saying, if you operate in generosity, I will give you access to these things that you couldn't have access to without you operating in generosity. And God just completely just blessed us and gave us access to, to this house that, that would have been lost, I fully believe, if I would have withheld and now maybe it's a coincidence, maybe. You know, maybe we just kind of got like, maybe just everything worked out, but it may just so happen that God was waiting for us to operate, me to operate in obedience so that he could bestow his blessings on me. Maybe it just so happened that God was saying, if you withhold, I can't bless, but if you freely give, then I will open up blessings that you don't have access to on your own. God cannot bless. He will not bless a stingy person. When you operate in generosity, God is free to bless. Praise the Lord, right? Every act of generosity is an investment into a blessed life. And I want a blessed life. I do. So Boaz, in his life, he stands in complete contradiction to this man. Radical generosity versus complete selfishness. And God is going to bless the generosity. And, and, and when you put these two men together, Boaz and this other man, that there, is, there is a lineage of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 where it's talking about the bloodline from Abraham to Jesus. And there is one of these men is mentioned in the bloodline, in the lineage of Christ. And it's not the man who was trying to protect his estate. It's the man who operated in divine generosity and said, you know what? I could care less about my estate, but we're going to redeem this family and we're going to be good to this family, and we're going to restore God's blessings on this family. So the one man who didn't really care about his estate is mentioned in the lineage and legacy of Christ, where Boaz is talked about, and his mother-in-law, or his mother Rahab, and his wife Ruth, and we see him in divine generosity getting mentioned in the legacy of Jesus. Man, isn't God good? Isn't God good? Verse 7, let's keep going. Now in those days, it was custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal and he said to Boaz, you buy the land. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, and with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in this hometown, here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, for whom all the nations of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, son of Tamar and Judah. They're speaking life. They're speaking blessings over this union. And it's remarkable because they are, they are welcoming this foreigner, this Moabite pagan into their ranks. And they're saying, may God bless her. May God raise her up as, as our patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith. May God do something great in her. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. So um, Ruth was married to uh, um, her husband for about 10 years and um, no child, no babies. And Ruth basically was married to Boaz for a day. They get pregnant on their honeymoon and God is already ready to bless. Okay, so this is what we have going on. Then the woman of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Again, in that day, if, if you had seven sons, that was like the epitome of God's blessing. To have seven sons was like, man, God must really, really love you. To have seven sons is like the best it could possibly get for a family. But what these women are saying is this pagan Moabite daughter-in-law of yours has been better to you than seven sons. Like God has blessed you with this Moabite girl in a way that he doesn't bless a woman with seven sons. And they're beginning to see this picture of redemption. They're beginning to see God's goodness and his will and his love for Naomi restored and not restored in a way that she has seven sons, but restored in a way that they realize the character, the virtue, the integrity of this Moabite woman. These are statements of faith. These are statements of blessings. These are vocal and verbal blessings. And dads, I, I think that it's important for us to bless our kids in the name of the Lord, to, to bless them, to love them verbally and vocally, to call out God's will in their life, to pray for them in the morning, to pray for them in the evening. May you go, may you go with the Lord. May the Lord go with you. May his glory surround you. May, may he be there with you. May he protect you. May he restore you. And, and, and son and daughter, when you have the ability to stand alone, but you're standing for God, you stand for God because God is going to be with you. He is never going to leave you or forsake you. And you tell your sons and daughters that you see greatness in them. And you remind your sons and daughters that they are princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. You remind them to maintain their integrity and you fight for them verbally and vocally. You fight with them and saying, look, if you are going to stand alone, I am going to stand with you. And your heavenly father will never leave you or forsake you. We need to speak blessings over them. Blessings over them. Verse 16, Naomi took the baby, cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. And now her joy is complete. She's kissing and cuddling this little baby, blowing raspberries on his fat little baby belly. 
And grandchildren have a way of restoring youth, don't they? I see my dad around my kids, you know, and just, he, he goes crazy. I mean, he, he this, this one day, he was pushing them up a hill in a wagon, and he ran full speed up this hill. I want to tell him, man, you're too old to be doing that. But babies have a, you know, grandkids have a way of restoring youth. You know, when, when, when my dad is around my kids, I have to yell at my dad more than I do my kids because it's just, come on, dad, grow up. I mean, you know, but they have a way of restoring youth. And for Naomi, this little boy was a form of redemption. Verse 17, then the neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. Listen to this. We're about to close. They named him Obed. And he became the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Listen to this. This boy, born from Boaz and Ruth, was David's, King David, the giant slayer David. It was David's grandpa. This is a divine legacy. Now listen, when we talk about legacy, we don't always know what God is going to do in our children's lives. We don't always know what God is going to do in our grandchildren's life, but there are moments. There are legacy-making moments that we get a glimpse of. Legacy-making moments where we can kind of see prophetically what God is planning on doing. And, and sometimes the Holy Spirit will let us glimpse into the future in these legacy-making moments. Several years ago, my son, Abram, he's 12 now, and uh, back when he was about three years old, I mean, he reads all the time. Like, I mean, he is just endued. Like, he's a reader, man. And, and when he was five, I mean, he was already worried about college, and he wanted to start saving for college. I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? He just, he just liked that. And so when he was three years old, he liked to play college. He wanted to play college. And so he'd get his little backpack, and he'd stuff his stuffed animals, and he'd stuff his blankie in there, and, and he'd stuff, like, his, you know, Goodnight Moon book in there, and he'd go off to college because those are the things you need to co at college. But he would also put in the phone book because he said at college you need books without pictures smart dude right so he would put in his phone book and he'd take his phone book and all that other stuff to college and he'd put his backpack on and he'd walk a little ways he'd sit over here on the floor and he'd he'd unpack his blankie and his stuffed animal and i'm like dude when you go to college let's we'll work on that later but he, but he and then he pulls his phone book out and then he says this he says dad do you want to have a bible study and there i don't know if it's it's just because his dad's a pastor and we talk about the Bible a lot or, or if this was a glimpse, a prophetic glimpse into his future that, that when he goes and when he is preparing for life, he is going to be so consumed with the things of God, so consumed with the Spirit of God on his life that a Bible study, getting in the Word and being in God's presence is going to be one of the most important things in his life. And I'm praying, dear God, Holy Spirit, let this be, let this be a glimpse into his legacy. Let this be a legacy-making moment that I can see that we can point back to. God, do it in his life. We have a family in our church who, man, they love the Lord. They love the Lord and, and they both serve. The husband and wife both serve and, and he always gives me a hard time after my messages and, you know, we always go back and forth. And I always tell him, hey, it's okay to be wrong, you know, sort of thing. But, uh, man, they love the Lord and read scripture to their kids and, just, just raising them up in the Lord. 
just the precious spirit in this family. And um, this, the, the oldest girl in their family said, you know, told their parents, told her parents, you know, I want to go to camp this year. I want to go to kids camp. And they told her, you know, you're not going this year. We're just not going to do it. And they have that right. You know, things come up. They, you know, there's nothing wrong with that to, to tell, you know, not this year, maybe next year you can go. And this was her response. She said, Mom, God has a plan for me, you know. You're going to have to let me go some point. And uh, I mean, how do you respond to that, right? God has a plan for me. Yeah, he does. And so you know where she's going to be in two weeks? Camp. Because, because you can't, like, she wasn't asking about Gaga Ball or the pop standard friend. She was just like, look, God has something for me. Don't stand in the way of that. Legacy-making moments, right? And what I love about being a parent, what I love about being in this church is that sometimes you get a glimpse into those legacy-making moments. Isn't God sweet? Isn't God good? Isn't God kind? Aren't you grateful that you have a redeemer? Aren't you grateful that God not only loves you, but he loves your kids and he's speaking to your kids and he's working in the lives of your kids? Aren't you grateful that right now over there in kids' church, like the Holy Spirit is talking to them and communicating with them and he's speaking life and he's calling some of them to give their lives in complete surrender to him? Aren't you glad that God is doing that over there? Yes. To see God work. To see God work in that way, it's just, man, he's so good. God keeps speaking to them. God raised that generation up to be far greater and to do so much more for the kingdom of God than our generation did. Use them, Lord, and God pursues them. And he's concerned about the legacy. He's concerned about the growth of the kingdom of God. He's raising up generous kids. He's raising up kind kids. I want you to stand your feet all across this place. We're going to pray and close. Because this isn't about religion. It's not about luck. It's not even about happiness or wedded bliss or babies. This is about redemption. Listen to this. In order to be redeemed, we have to have a redeemer. We have to have a redeemer. I'm gonna close this message this morning by showing you the gospel in this one more time. I want you to see this. I think it's so important that we connect this back to Jesus. Watch this. In that day, there were three marks of a redeemer. Three marks of a redeemer, three identifiers. Number one, the redeemer had to be a near kinsman. It means he had to be relationally close. Boaz was a close relative, had to be relationally close. This is why Jesus had to put flesh on and come down to live as a man on earth amongst us because in order to be a redeemer, which we needed, he had to be relationally close. Isn't God good? The second thing is the redeemer had to be able to afford the redemption price. Boaz had the wealth, he had the money to be able to afford, to afford the redemption price. Now look, there was only one man in the history of the world who was able to afford the redemption price. Only one man who was without sin. Only one man who was perfect, sinless, and completely morally and spiritually spotless. And he was the only man who was able to afford the redemption price. Nobody else could 
afford that price. There was no sacrificial system that could purchase that redemption, nothing. It was all just a weak picture of the perfect picture of Jesus Christ. So there was only one man who could afford that price. And number three, the redeemer had to be willing to redeem. The jerk in our story wasn't willing to redeem. Boaz was willing. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus was willing to redeem because Jesus willingly laid his life down for us. Don't think for a minute that there was a contingent of Roman soldiers that took Jesus' life. Don't think for a minute that they forcefully took Jesus' life. Don't think for a minute that there was a group of religious Pharisees that were loud enough to compel the rulers of the day to kill Jesus. No, nobody takes the life of Jesus. Listen, if you serve a God that can be killed by man, then that's not a God that's worth serving. Jesus willingly laid his life down. And he proved it in the, garden of, in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came and said, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm he. And like a thousand soldiers all fell, all fell to the ground. I, I, that, that was just Jesus saying, look, just a reminder, nobody's taken my life. I'm gonna lay it down, but you're not taking it from me. Jesus was willing to pay the price. Redemption cost Ruth nothing. Boaz paid everything. Redemption costs us nothing. Jesus paid everything. Isn't he sweet? Isn't Jesus so good? Isn't he a good father? Isn't he a righteous king? Don't you love him? Aren't you blessed by him? So you have reason for joy because you have a redeemer. You have the potential for a great legacy because you have a redeemer. There is, there is opportunity for the miraculous in your life because you have a redeemer. You have access to blessings that will blow your mind because you have a redeemer. So we're gonna do this. I'm just gonna pray over you and then we're gonna let you go. Bow your heads, close your eyes all across this place. I wanna pray specifically for our men and our fathers this morning. Boaz was a worthy man and he looked a lot like Jesus. Listen, husbands, dads, fathers, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm speaking to your heart right now. Your children, your spouse needs a man that looks like Jesus. Our churches need a man that looks like Jesus. Our messed up, crazy world needs strong, fearless, forceful men who look like Jesus. Men who are willing to do whatever God asks us to do. Men who are willing to operate in generosity. Men who are willing to redeem and restore and set right. Men who are called by God to do the will of God. So what I wanna do is I just wanna pray a blessing over our men. So all across this place, men, if you're fathers or not, I want you to raise your hands if you're willing to receive this blessing. Holy Spirit, I pray for the spirit of Boaz on these men. I pray for the spirit of generosity. I pray for the spirit of redemption. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would show them what it means to look like you and you would give them the strength and the ferocity and the aggressiveness to do it. God, we know 
that when you sent your son, Jesus, to live in this earth, to live on this world, he, he, he beat against the grain all the time. And he often had to stand alone. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would raise up Boazes. I pray that you would raise up men with the spirit of Christ that operate in kindness, that operate in generosity, that operate in redemption, that are smart in business, that are smart financially, that grow in wealth, that operate in generosity, that will see people restored to the kingdom of God and advance your kingdom here on this earth. Lord Jesus, I pray for the spirit of Boaz in their family, that you would begin a divine legacy, that they they would have legacy-making moments, glimpses into the calling that you have on their sons and their daughters. Lord Jesus, I pray for the spirit of Boaz in these marriages, where marriages are feeling tense, where there is brokenness in these marriages, Lord Jesus. I pray the spirit of Boaz would rise up and you would begin to restore what the enemy is trying to steal. All across this place, Lord Jesus, I pray for our men. I pray for their spirit. I pray for their well-being, Lord Jesus, and I pray that you would use them. Use them, Lord. Use them to look like you. Use them to show the world what it means to have Jesus Christ in their life. God, I love you and I thank you. We worship you, Lord. We ask all of these things in your good and perfect and precious name. In your name we pray, amen. Let's give the Lord one more hand clap of praise for what he's doing. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com.